The Jodcast, without Nick and Dave, but with Adam Averson, Stuart Lowe and Tim O'Brien. The Jodcast, May 2010 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Stuart Lowe and joining me this time is Adam Averson. Hi Adam. Hi. And welcome back to the Jodcast. You've uh, thanks. It's not been, been on it for a few months. No, quite a while now. Well, you've been doing a great job of editing. I've tried my best. <laughs> Last time on the Jodcast, we talked about our survey, and thanks to all those people who've responded, we've had 194 responses to the survey. 188 of you took part in our draw, and we have chosen a winner using a pseudo-random pseudo number generator to pick a number. Unfortunately, we can't tell you who the winner of that book is at the moment because we only have an email address and we don't want to read your email address out on the Jodcast. That wouldn't be very nice of us. So we will be sending an email. So if you happen to have an email from the Jodcast, make sure you open it. It's not spam. You may have won a prize. <laughs> and then you could let us know who you are so that we can tell people in the next show. Exactly. And we'll be talking a bit about some of the responses we had to the survey a bit later on in the show um, in place of the usual feedback section. Anyway, as we said in, over the music at the beginning, there's no Nick or Dave at the moment. Um, obviously, that's Nick Rattenbury and Dave Alt. in case you were thinking of any other Nick and Daves. I can't imagine any other Nick and Daves. <laughs> <laughs> no, neither can I. Dave Alt is actually away in the United States at the moment. He's on a grand tour of planetariums and other things. He's going around on an astro tour, <laughs> which sounds like a lot of fun. So Dave won't be with us for a, a while, but hopefully we'll be able to catch up with him via Skype or something during the summer. Anyway, coming up on the show this time, Tim will be answering your questions, but first we have some more of those interviews that we recorded at the National Astronomy Meeting back in Glasgow in April this year. Okay, we've stepped away from the National Astronomy Meeting for a, a morning to go to the Glasgow Science Centre, which is an amazing building with an amazing exhibition inside by the looks of it. I'm here at an exhibition of photographs by Max Alexander, and Max is here joining me. Welcome to the Jodcast, Max. Hello. For, for the International Year of Astronomy last year, you created um, a series of photographs of astronomers. So normally we, we think of images of space and objects in space, and this exhibition, as the introduction from the Astronomer Royal, um, says it's to look at the creatures who ponder the mystery and wonder of the cosmos of which they are part, which is a, a very nice introduction to you. Um, would you just like to introduce the exhibition for us? Okay. Well, these photographs were for the International Year of Astronomy, I studied astronomy at UCL about seven or eight years ago. I did a diploma in astronomy. And uh, while I was doing that course, I thought it would be a great idea to do a series of photographs, a series of portraits of the, of the leading figures in the broad cross-section of, of astronomers in the UK. When I found out it was going to be the International Year of Astronomy, I thought that this was a good opportunity. So I went through the um, Science and Society Award program at STFC, and they gave me enough resources and money to realise this project. So the exhibition last year was in the Royal Albert Hall, I think, wasn't it? That's right, yeah, the exhibition was, um, was exhibited at the Royal Albert Hall back in autumn for about six weeks, and uh, we tried to reach a different demographic. Obviously here we're at a science centre, and that's, that's great, and a lot of these pictures very much fit into this kind of environment, but we did try to reach a wider audience, and the Albert Hall provided that uh, wider cross-section and I think there was as many as 100,000 people would have seen the photographs over that period of time when they went to see performances at the Albert Hall. Right. 
Now, I, I've been having a look around, and you've got these photographs on your website. We'll put a link to that on our show notes as well, so people can have a look at some of them. I, I, I really like your, your selection of images that you've got here. Would you just like to just show us around some of your pictures in a, an audio tour? Yeah, sure. Well, just as a general comment before we start, most of these photographs are interpretive to the astronomer's work. I've got some character shots here, but most of the pictures, I'm trying to introduce some ideas and some concepts from astronomy into the photographs and try and express what the, what the astronomers do. I'm also trying to photograph them as individuals rather than astronomy as a wide subject and trying to you know, show these inspired people what they're doing, the leading edge of, of their profession. So the first picture here is um, of Roger Penrose and he's on a spiral staircase um, in, in, at the University of Oxford at Linacre College. And part of the idea was his twister theory about black holes. I don't know too much about the, the hard science behind that, but I do know, obviously, his work, in, and especially in the 1960s, with black holes. And um, so this to express of some of the geometry and, that goes into um, to black holes and, and, and spiral galaxies. So just to describe it, it's, you're basically, as a photographer, you're at the top of the spiral staircase and looking down through the centre of the core of the spiral. Um, with Roger Penrose on one of the steps lower down below you. That's right. We're, we're right down on top. We're right on the very top floor. It's a very difficult picture to pull off because I've got to use a tripod and uh, it produces some difficult angles for the tripod to be set up at and for the camera to be le- leaning right out across the middle of the spiral staircase. And there's also uh, there's a flash on him as well. His nine-year-old boy, who's also called Max, was uh, helping me out for the day and he was holding up the flashlight pointing at his father for the picture. Right, very good. And just moving along, I think we've got Will Percival here. That's right. So this is a picture of, of Will. He's looking, um, he's written some equations on, on a piece of perspex. They, they look back to front to us to, as the observer, but um, they're, they're written the right way around for him. And he was very, very careful about how he wrote them out because he was worried that some of his colleagues, if he, if he made any mistakes, that uh, he would get caught out by his colleagues. So it's that. more accurate than a Hollywood movie? I think so. I believe so. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Will was great, and um, he's got his eyes closed in the picture, and it's quite. Hopefully, there's a bit of mood and, and, and character in the shot, and it's him contemplating his work and uh, his equations. And as we move along, okay, the next picture is of Herania Perez. Herania is holding a television, an old black and white television from the 1960s, and we've untuned it, and you can see the snow on the TV. And uh, as a lot of you are probably aware about 1% of the snow on, on, a t- on an untuned television on an old analogue TV is leftover radiation from the Big Bang, the C- it, CMB. Yeah, it's great that you can observe the, the beginnings of the universe from your, the comfort of your own living room. Well, that's right. We try to introduce every idea down here on Earth as, you know, that we're connected to the universe out there. You know, the Earth isn't a separate place. It's, it's part of the Milky Way galaxy. And I, I had that in the back of my mind for some of these ideas. The next picture is of, of Mike Cruz, and Mike is working on gravitational waves. He's very involved. Um, I think he may be the UK principal investigator for, for Lisa Pathfinder. So gravitational waves, just to remind our listeners, are distortions in space-time, the fabric of space-time that That's right. stretch and squash space. That's right, yeah. So, I mean, r- ripples in the fabric of space-time is how they were described to me. I worked with a professional astronomer, Ian Howarth, from University College of London, and we sat down and brainstormed a lot of these ideas I had about 20 ideas in mind when I, when I started out the project and then Ian helped me develop those and for this picture here we thought about and I said well tell me Ian, what, how would you describe a gravitational wave and just like I said before there are ripples in the fabric of space time so I thought about water 
and there's a picture here of of uh, of Mike with uh, I've thrown a, a rock over his head and um, he was unflinching as I did that and then these these ripples came out in the pond and he looks quite angelic it looks hopefully a little bit like a Giotto painting as well with this this big halo around his head perhaps also the idea of brain waves as well is is in there but it's it's probably to me it's one of the most satisfying pictures and part of that is the simplicity of it. It's, it's very simple. And did it take you many attempts to get that to land just behind his head? The well, rock? I, I probably th- probably had about a bag of about 20 rocks. And we had to have the, the rock just the right size and um, have to throw it out the right distance. So I didn't have an assistant with me. It was actually drizzling at the time. And I felt like I was a bit like I was a hooker in the line-out. I used to play rugby but not hooker. So I had to throw it just the right height and the right distance. And there's no splash visible, so did you get it very, very Well, quick? I actually had to wait for two or three seconds right. for, for the, the ripples sort of to come out and to be a nice settled shape. It was actually, of, of the pictures I took, there's only really one that, that, that is, is spot on. Okay, the next picture is of uh, Dr. Serena Vitti. Serena is an astrobiologist and working with prebiotic life at uh, University College London. So I've got her in this... In this uh, chemistry lab, laboratory and uh, she's, she's about eight months pregnant in this photograph so we're obviously playing with the themes of life here and in astrobiology and biology together and that's right and uh, we've, we've, uh, on the plaque here we talk about uh, stellar nurseries and the search for life in the universe and we're trying to just uh, introduce a bit of humour into the photographs yeah I must say I really like there's a, there is a vein of humour through quite a few of these that I really like it's that's right. I did try and introduce humour and wit into the photographs. Astronomy can obviously be a very difficult subject to understand. So I th- hopefully that helps with connecting with the public. And in all these pictures, I'm, I'm thinking, is this too esoteric? Is it too specific to the science? You know, you know it's, it's more about the audience than it is about the science. More about connecting to them, to what I'm trying to do. So this photograph is of Sean Pauling. He's at, Sean's at, at uh, Sheffield University. And he, he works in the Bowlby Mine. Uh, so looking in the north of England. That's northeast. right. The Bowlby Mine's in, in, North, in North Yorkshire. And uh, it's one kilometre down in an old salt mine. And it's an amazing place to go to. And uh, they're, they're trying to detect wimps. It's, it's the search for dark so matter. The, the weekly interacting massive particles. That's right. So they haven't found, every, apparently every day they ask him, have you found the dark matter yet? These, these very tough Yorkshire miners as he goes down in the elevator with them but uh, not, not as yet. It's a nice simple one as well because mostly it's a, a, a very black um, background there being down in a mine. There's a very limited light source. Uh, I think he's holding a torch and did he actually draw the, the, some, the words dark matter written? He did. This is a single image. It's taken, uh, it's a two-minute exposure. I've got the camera on a tripod and uh, we've got some marks on the floor down on the ground and Sean has written those letters back to front and he did a fantastic job. We've, we've not done anything to that photograph. It's straight out the camera. So he, he did them back to front. He wrote them in two, different, in two lines, and then he did a, a wave with his, with his torch, and then I fired a flash at the end of the exposure. So it's all in ah, one so that's shot. that's how you got him illuminated and the, the movement of, of him writing. So, so how was Bulby Mine? It was an amazing experience. It, it extends many hundreds of metres out into the ocean, out into the sea. And um, it's an incredible place to visit. It's very humid, it's very damp, and um, a lot of burly Yorkshire miners walking around. Okay, and then the next image is another quite dark image with limited light in it, which is showing us um, Professor Carlos Frank, who's a cosmologist and works on simulations of 
the large-scale structure in the universe. So when astronomers look up at the night sky, they're only look, they know they're only looking at about 4% of the stuff of the universe. The, the stars, the gas, the dust, is all the baryonic matter. And so here, the lit part of his face is about 4% of the frame, representing that normal baryonic matter. The unlit part of his face is around about a quarter, around about 23% of the frame. And that represents the dark matter in the universe. And the rest of the frame, about three quarters, about 73, 74% of the frame, is the dark energy that astronomers haven't yet discovered what it is. Yeah. So there's increasing mysteries that we have as astronomers. It's quite embarrassing that we don't know about this vast majority, 96% of the universe. Well, there's a lot of work that astronomers have got to do. They only know this very small percentage of what the universe is made of. As we, we move up, we get to Tom Bowles, who's an amateur astronomer. Yeah, that's right. Tom was the president of the British Astronomical Association. He, he was, uh, he's a Glaswegian, I think. He's certainly Scottish. I'm pretty sure he's from Glasgow. He was a professional man who, when he retired, he took up very serious amateur astronomy. And in the last six months or so, he's broken the record for the number of supernovae discoveries. Uh, he's broken Frank Zwicky's record from the 1930s. And uh, he's getting recognised for that now. And it's a remarkable achievement. So I've taken a photograph of him in his, his observatory in Suffolk. So we see his telescope in the middle of his dome, which is open. Um, looks like he's getting ready to observe. That's right. Of course, he does all observing from the comfort of his, his house. But this, this is a picture of him uh, just uh, before he's to set out on a night's observing. And uh, he, it's quite amazing what he's done. He's, you know, he's, with respect to... Um, the number of discoveries that he's made, and, and obviously he's in contact with a lot of professional astronomers, and he, and uh, and they follow up on his work. Well, amateurs do an amazing amount of astronomy, which is not true in many other fields of science. You don't expect amateur brain surgeons, but it's great that amateurs are still are now, especially with CCD cameras, the last twenty years, are able to do so much. That's right, and uh, as you say, it's one of the few fields where that can happen. And obviously, with citizen astro- astronomy now, with with the Galaxy Zoo and, and other spin-off. Um, websites from other fields of astronomy that's really bringing in a, a, a very large number of the general public not just people who are interested specifically in astronomy As we move along this, the selection you have here we've got Andy Lawrence who's a professor at the University of Edinburgh at the Astronomy Technology Centre he's sat at a desk, he's got a, a radio on one side of him and a computer screen showing a, an x-rayed hand on the other side and he's got a, a rainbow spectrum behind him in the background there yeah, what, what I've got here is this, this, this prism effect uh, got from red all the way through to the ultraviolet in the background. A- Andy works at multiple wavelengths, and as an observational astronomer, I, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of what he does, but uh, he, he works at the cross-section of astronomy. And uh, so starting from the radio all the way through to X-rays and, and gamma rays. So we're just trying to express Andy's work in this photograph here with the, with the radio, with the X-ray on the screen, uh, with him holding his hand out like it is in the X-ray, and then the visible light behind him. And I like, as an astronomer, I really like the fact that you've got the red on the left side going across to the the, the purple on the right side, the blues. Um, yeah. So it matches up with where the radio and the X-ray are yeah. placed. Yeah, this is actually two photographs. So I'm, I'm letting into all my little secrets now, but <laughs> I, I have got I've got a prism at home, and I photographed the spectrum of light on on the ground on an A4 piece of paper, and then we brought that in as a, as a wash and the colour behind him. Right. And be, when I took his portrait, I, I had a red gel on the side of his face to express the direction of that of that red part of the spectrum. Yep. 
So you had me full there. I thought that I was assuming the red, the red tint on the side of his I've face. Let was... the, I've let the cat out of the bag. Well, it's good to know these techniques. And then as we move along, we've got um, someone who we interviewed on the Jodcaster a couple of years ago, Professor Jocelyn Bell from the University of Oxford, who is famous for discovering pulsars just 43 years ago this year. And Jocelyn has a, a lighthouse behind her in this image. I th- that's quite appropriate, given that she studies pulsars. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know a great deal about the physics behind the pulsars, but they, I believe they act like a lighthouse. They talk about the lighthouse model of a, of a pulsar, how it sends out a collimated beam of, of light, very directional, and if the Earth is in the path of that beam, then we'll see it head on. And uh, so that's why I've, I've got a picture of her beside Portland Bill Lighthouse. So did you, actually, South Coast. did you actually go there with Jocelyn to... to no, Jocelyn, unfortunately, um, it was very difficult because I, I needed a fog right. to, to go through the, through the light oh, of the, the lighthouse to okay. see the beams. And uh, with her schedule, she, she couldn't come down. So it is, it is a montage image. It is two photographs. There was a long period of time we didn't have much fog in the UK, and I, I waited for a full six months. I'm sure lots of people wouldn't believe that. <laughs> yeah, I know. But in, in, for, for down at Portland Bill, we didn't have fog for a long time, so... We finally got the call from a B&B that I'd stayed in previously and they said that the fog horn has gone off. So I, I drove through the night to get down there for five in the morning to, to take that photograph. And are the lights in the lighthouse the, the original lighthouse lights or are they lights that you've put there? No, that's the... It's still the, a working lighthouse? It, it's very much a working lighthouse, very much so. It's a dangerous coastline down there. Right. Uh, I quite like this image because I instantly recognise the quote that it's um, depicting. Oscar Wilde said that we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking up at the stars. So I've got Alan Watson here, who studies cosmic rays at Leeds University, lying in a gutter and, uh, at Leeds University. And, this, and this, isn't, this isn't a double image where you shot him separately. You actually had him lying in a gutter. No, he is there. Some of his colleagues and students were walking by as he lay there and uh, making some uh, lots of sort of interesting remarks. And, but Alan didn't seem to mind at all. He just carried on and was quite nonplussed about the whole thing, really. So, so were all the astronomers that you used, were they quite happy to be in, in rather strange-looking situations? I did have to be very persuasive. It did take me a long time for a lot of these astronomers. A lot of them are very busy, obviously, and uh, some of the reactions to begin with was that, uh, is this guy to be taken seriously? And I think some of them even followed up at the STFC press office to make sure I was who I said <laughs> I was. Um, but almost all of them came on board. In fact... I found that, that the scientists, the astronomers I work with are very creative people and that they, I learnt that in their job they do have to be creative. To, to It's not all just about the science and the maths. And, uh, and in many of these pictures it was a collaborative effort, not just with Ian Howard from UCL but also the individual astronomers to, to, to narrow down, to converge on, on a particular idea and how we're going to execute it and how, we, how we'd pull it off. Some astronomers didn't want to do certain things there's one I wanted to stand on a trampoline to express <laughs> the curvature of space, and he didn't want to do that, so we did something else. And uh, but uh, it was it was very much a collaborative effort. Right. Um, we have a couple of famous, very famous astronomers and um, cosmologists and theoretical physicists. We've got Patrick Moore and Stephen Hawking. Um, both I see Patrick Moore's in his study um, in his house, where he usually films the sky at night with some TV cameras filming him. I guess that's a, to show what he normally does or is known for. That's right. Well, obviously, it, well, it speaks for himself what he's done in his life of broadcasting and publishing. So I've got him surrounded by television cameras in his study, as you said. And uh, I just had a very short three or four minutes between takes where I could get this photograph. So it was a very quick setup. And um, 
he uh, is staring down the camera. He never smiles in his pictures. He's got a very stern look on his face, but I think it hopefully expresses Patrick. The other pictures of Stephen Hawking, and uh, once again, I didn't have a lot of time to take this photograph, but um, it's in uh, at uh, DAMTP, if I've got that right. Damn tip. At, uh, at, at Cambridge University. Well, now we reach Professor Jerry Gilmore, who is one of the first people we actually ever interviewed on the Jodcast um, from the University of Cambridge. And there's, a, there's an image from very high looking down on him. Would you like to just describe where he is? Okay, this is taken from Cromer Pier in Norfolk, and Cromer's where uh, Albert Einstein spent three months before he went to America in the 1930s. And uh, we enjoyed a, a pint at the pub that he used to drink out there after we took this photograph. So in, in the picture it says, uh, what I've written in the sand is, there are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on the earth. And it is actually a statement of, of fact. They, uh, they have actually measured a part of the sky and then extrapolated roughly how many stars there would be in the universe. I believe it's seven followed by 22 zeros, which is more than there are grains of sand on the, on the earth. So it was a very, very difficult picture to take. Jerry had to be available. I had to be free. The tides had to be right, and uh, also the sun as well. So it took a tremendous amount of planning, and Jerry did give up most of his day to, uh, to be there for the photograph. I was quite nervous when I wrote that in the sand because I tested it twice before, and, and once I got the spelling right. Um, but, but we got it, and the tides were just right for only for, for 15 minutes or so while they were turning. And, uh, so you didn't have the, the waves coming in and washing out your writing? That's right. Well, we were f- far enough up the beach. Well, there was a storm the night before that changed the whole shape of the beach. So I was a bit nervous about this one day that I had with Jerry, but uh, we got there in the end. And there's a picture next to Jerry. We've got these supporting photographs that go with each of the photographs which describe the astronomer's work and a small picture which we've got here of a, a globular cluster with, with uh, hundreds of thousands of, of stars and and Jerry is working on the upcoming ESA mission Gaia, which is going to be extremely exciting. It's going to measure the exact positions of stars more precisely than we've ever done before. Uh, the, the best quote I heard him say in our interview was, the whole solar system will be oscillating like a jelly, <laughs> as far as Gaia is concerned. And as we move along, we've got Professor Colin Pillinger, who's uh, ho- hopefully internationally known. Um, he was the main person behind Beagle 2, but unfortunately didn't land on Mars successfully. Um, but it was a, a plucky mission, and if it had landed, it would have done excellent science. So I've got uh, this picture of Colin is taken at Sandy Quarry in Bedfordshire, and it's a place where ESA actually tests some of the, the rovers, well, the Bridget, I believe it's called, that's, that's planned to, uh, to, la- to land on, on the Red Planet. And, uh, and also Beagle 2 was taken down here as well, so it does look incredibly like Mars. And I uh, shot, uh, shot Colin here with very warm morning light, and uh, he's dressed in a, in a spacesuit, in a, in a NASA spacesuit with his helmet. You can, if you look really very carefully at the helmet, you can actually see a, a, a radio mask reflected in the in the helmet. The future of exploration of Mars, we will have a radio mast. There's some trees as well, but we just decided <laughs> to leave those in there. Are, they, are these the real colours of the, the rock and the sand? Um, we did tweak it up a little bit in Photoshop. It is slightly redder than, than what we actually saw. Because when you see it next to your smaller image of um, Victoria Crater by Opportunity, um, the colours are, are, are amazingly close. Yeah, we did tweak it a bit, but it was the light was very very warm morning light, and uh, I was conscious of that photograph we're going to have next to it. But just to, to reinforce the fact that you know, places on Earth can be incredibly like other places in the solar system. Yep. 
And now we have someone who is internationally well-known, but primarily not because of his astronomy, because he's a rock star, and that's Dr. Brian May. We reported on him becoming a doctor um, a couple of years ago. And here he is, he's next to his guitar, and is this his telescope? That's right, this is a telescope. It's made out of, it's it's basically a cardboard cylinder that he made when he was about 15 with his father. So I've I've got a picture of Brian in his house in Surrey and uh, it's also next to him is the red special guitar it's a, very, it's a piece of British rock folklore that guitar he's uh, written most of his music on it and performed on Buckingham Palace with it so he also made that incredibly with his father when he was a teenager it's part of a mahogany table in the fireplace and there's a, a feedback thing on the side of it that's actually his mother's knitting needle so these are two parts of his life together in one photograph his, his career in music and also his, his interest in work in astronomy Excellent and here we have another amateur astronomer I think which is Damien Peach who images planets OK so I've got a picture of Damien here taken with a fisheye lens and what I've tried to do Damien is one of the world's best astroimages of, of, of planets and uh, so I've used a, a fisheye lens, which has given us a complete circle of the photograph to make it look a bit like a planet. And um, the sky is looking quite marbled, like it like it would do from uh, from space. And um, it's really just a bit of fun and just a quirky photograph to to show off what he does. So in the evening, presumably, there's a very long shadow behind him. Yep, yep, there is. There's a long shadow from my tripod, and we had to take that out. It, uh, but um, yeah. He's an amazing astrophotographer. I mean, the, the work, I think he multiple images he stacks together. I think they may even run in the thousands, and he produces these images, which are... Is this know, one of his images of Jupiter next to the, the picture? That's right, yeah, the picture here. He, I don't know where he took this photograph. He, does, he takes pictures from his backyard in Reading, but he also goes abroad to, to look for the best skies as well. It's an incredible shot, that, actually, of, of Jupiter. I presume it's lots of images stacked, like you say. It's amazing the details you can see in the cloud bands. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this, this looks like it's taken from a spacecraft, you know, it really does. 10 or 15 <laughs> like years ago. It's like a telescope. And then we move along to Manino, um, Dr. Hayley Gomez from the University of Cardiff. Um, and I like that you're keeping to sort of British sci-fi tradition here, using quarries and things. Um, Hayley seems to be in a, in a quarry as well. Well, talking about sci-fi, this is, this is taken just, uh, just north of Cardiff where they filmed Doctor Who. And uh, so they used to film crews going up there. So Haley's uh, surrounded in a big cloud of dust here, and she she works with with gas and dust in the universe. That's in the, in the interstellar medium. And uh, so her husband's also Ed Gomez, is a professional astronomer as well. So I've got him with a with a blower brush, and we've got this big pile of filler dust that's been put down next to her, and uh, he's got, he, he's got this this leaf blower kicking up this big cloud of dust. It was a very very difficult picture to take. My Hasselblad camera was covered in dust. I knew it would be, and we only got a few frames. It was freezing cold in January, but hopefully, uh, hopefully it works and it's a bit of fun. Uh, moving along, we come to a solar physicist, and uh, this is Dr. Lindsay Fletcher, who I think we've also interviewed on the Jodcast as well. It's quite nice to see Jodcast interviewees being represented here. That's right. Well, we've got a picture here of Lindsay Fletcher. Uh, they're not all interpretive photographs to the science. This is a straight character shot of Lindsay, and uh, Lindsay's a solar physicist who has organised the National Astronomical Meeting this week. And it's next to the final photograph in the series here. It's of uh, Sir Martin Rees, and there's a picture of Isaac Newton behind him. When I walked into his office at the Royal Society in London, he said to me, would you like to photograph me beside this portrait of Isaac Newton? So, uh, so I said that that would be, that would be fine. 
I actually asked if we could draw the curtains over so I knew the light would flare onto the painting and the, uh, he said, well, can we wait 20 minutes because it was the state opening of Parliament? And, uh, and, the, and uh, so I said, sure. So about 20 minutes later, the Queen was going by in her gold carriage and he was in, in another office, so I, so I called out, uh, Lord Rees, the Queen is going by now. So it was quite a surreal moment. And I quite like the, the positioning you have of the picture behind him with Newton because Newton is famous for the quote of saying these his achievements were built on the shoulders of giants and here he is standing on the shoulders of Lord Rees. Well, I did mention that to him when I took the photograph and, uh, and uh, he, he, he smiled when I said it. And I, I am playing with that idea and that image. Of, I don't want to overstate it, but if people see it, that's great. And, it, and that idea will, will, will jump out at the viewer. The last tour of, uh, of, of Bernard Carr, who's a, uh, he, he works as a cosmologist, I guess, at uh, Queen's Mary University in the Mile End in, in London. And uh, I've got a picture of him reflected about... 17 or 18 times in these it's at uh, Apsley House in London Duke of Wellington's London residence so is this a real room that's full of mirrors yeah that's right there's mirrors on both sides of the room and so so, so Bernard's it's, it's a self portrait so otherwise I would have had to be in the photograph and um, it's expressing his, his work with the multiverse that there may not just be one universe there might be multiple numbers of universes he also talks about the quantum mechanical world of many interpretations I think that's bound up in his work as well and uh, we're trying to express those two ideas of the multiverse in this photograph multiple copies of him <laughs> and the, the final photograph in this selection here is of a very young astronomer this is, uh, this is Will Parker William Parker who's a uh, nine year old boy from South the south coast from Gosport and I, I bumped into him about three or four times as I was taking photographs around the UK he wasn't following you then even. <laughs> no no but he's a remarkable boy and he really stood out in my mind and I thought well you know we've got amateurs in here and he's an extremely keen amateur mm. and I got talking to him and his dad and he wants to be a professional astronomer so we used him as the last photograph in the, in the series and um, good luck to him. Hope he hope he does it. He's extremely he's passionate a... about it. He's next to Stephen Hawking, and uh, nine years old, he's reading Hawking's books. Excellent, and he will hopefully be the future of astronomy. So our listeners can find your images on your website, which is maxalexander.com, and we'll, as I said earlier, we'll put a link to that on our show notes. Are you also having further exhibitions around the country? Yeah, it's travelling around the country. So after the Royal Albert Hall, it went over to the University of Utrecht in Holland. It's been at the Centre for Life in Newcastle for about three months. It's now here at the Glasgow Science Centre. And uh, next will be Belfast, we hope. We're still confirming that. And there are several other locations around the UK as well. Science centres, but we're also trying to reach more public venues as well, um, like museums and so on. Well, it's an excellent exhibition of images and thank you very much for describing them to us on the Jodcast today. And thanks for that, Stuart. Now, as it's mid-May, we're coming up to the first anniversary of Herschel and Planck. They both launched on May the 14th last year, 2009, on an Ariane 5 rocket from French Guiana in South America. They've both been producing results. Now, Planck isn't due to produce its main results for another year or two, but Herschel has been producing a whole suite of results um, and a whole bunch of papers just recently appeared on the Astronomy Archive about Herschel results. So I talked to Professor Matt Griffin from the University of Cardiff to find out more. OK, we're joined by Professor Matt Griffin from Cardiff University. Welcome to the Jodcast, Matt. 
Thank you very much. And you're the PI, the principal investigator for the Spire instrument on Herschel, aren't you? That's right. Yeah, the Spire team is a very large international consortium, and it's my sort of great pleasure to be the, the front man. They do all the work, and uh, I can take all the credit. So this week, um, a few pictures and results were announced from Herschel here at NAM, the National Astronomy Meeting. Can you tell us about some of those results? I can. The, the results we've seen this week are actually uh, not much of an update compared to what was presented in the initial results workshop in Madrid. ESA have an embargo on uh, any future publication of results until their own big show, which is in Eztec in early May. And uh, at that meeting, there will be a huge array of new results presented. Today, what we saw is uh, the same as in Madrid, with uh, you know, nicer versions of pictures and uh, slightly more enhanced um, uh, assessments of the, the results. And I can tell you that there's a lot more behind the scenes that we haven't seen yet that should come out in a, in a big uh, expose in early May. Right. And so, because Herschel was launched last year, with, along with Planck on an Ariane 5, it's producing lots of results, as you say. Um, which are your favourite things that we've seen so far? Well, that's really a matter of taste. Uh, Herschel has something to offer everybody, from the solar system to the most distant galaxies. And our team and uh, the, the teams of uh, scientists uh, working on open-time data cover that whole spectrum. And I wouldn't care to say that any particular uh, uh, topic is more interesting than another uh, uh, we all have our own personal uh, preferences. My own is probably what Herschel is telling us about the, the large-scale structure and the, the uh, life cycle of the galaxy, the beautiful images that we've seen of, uh, of uh, star formation regions and uh, molecular clouds uh, being uh, uh, um, uh, impacted on by, by nearby stars and so on. All of those images contain a huge amount of scientific information, so they're not just cosmetically nice. And that's one of the things which I think Herschel is going to tell us most about, how, the, how our own galaxy lives and breeds. As I say, though, that's just my own, my own personal preference. And how long do you think Herschel will be producing results? Because it's got a limited lifetime, hasn't it? Yeah, it has a limited lifetime. We already know with a reasonable accuracy what the lifetime is going to be, probably somewhat less than four years, which is slightly longer than the design lifetime, so everything is working fine. And because it's limited lifetime, then we have to be ultra-careful to make sure that we use that limited time very effectively, and I think that's now happening. Uh, I expect that... Um, for most of the, the kinds of science that Herschel is doing, the legacy value of the surveys that it produces will result in a continuing scientific exploitation, uh, very similar to IRAS, which you know, flew a long time ago, but the data are still being used. That's what I'd like to see for Herschel, that the data will be uh, a very rich uh, resource for, for decades to come. Will those data be easily accessible on the ESA website? <laughs> they will. The de- uh, one of the um, nice features of Herschel is that a lot of effort has been put into the data processing side uh, during the preparation for the mission. That's one of the reasons why the quality of the data uh, uh, is so good so early in the mission. And uh, it's very important to make sure that when the archive is created that the data are very easy to use, that they don't require expert knowledge of the instruments or the calibration, that you can almost take uh, what comes out of the automatic pipelines uh, or what's available directly by downloading from the archive and do science on it straight away. And so effort is continuing to make sure that that's going to be the case. And I noticed there's a, a very nice um, Herschel website that just gives you a picture of the galaxy with little 
um, boxes on showing you where the nice pretty pictures the press release ones are as well. Yeah, ESA have created this special website, the online Herschel something image archive, and uh, there's a relatively small number of images in that at the, in there at the moment. But as soon as the embargo is lifted, then uh, I hope to see a lot more. Uh, okay, well, looking forward to lo- lots uh, lots of uh, new data and uh, new results coming soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stuart. So that was Matt Griffin talking in April this year. But as I mentioned before that interview, there have been a few results recently. And Adam, you've been looking at one of them. Yes, so um, a recent picture released by ESA um, from their Herschel mission is a picture of a a hole in space. A hole in space? Yep. This isn't a black hole then? No, a hole where there's actually nothing, which is quite interesting. So the hole appears next to a bright region, NGC 1999. So that's NGC, that's uh, some kind of nebula probably. It's uh, a yeah, new it's, general catalogue. Yep, it's a region of uh, bright reflective gas. And this hole has been known for quite a while. It's a dark region next to this bright source. So uh, they thought it, originally it was a, a dense region of gas. So the dense, re- the dense gas is blocking the light, making it dark. Whereas right. when Herschel went to look at some nearby uh, young stars they th- discovered that there's actually nothing there. They expected them to see something at the, the Herschel wavelengths, but got nothing. So because they, they thought it was some dark dust that was sat there, you expect the dust to shine it up It should in... be warm in the infrared, so... Right. So Herschel should be able to see something really be... bright and obvious there. Yep, and there's nothing. And so people have now pointed ground-based telescopes at it, and again, nothing. So it's a natural hole in space rather than... A hole caused by something blocking the light. Well, a hole in space sounds sounds terrifying to it, me. It sounds like a hole in space time or something. Into but... the uh, the void and. Be <laughs> <laughs> uh, ah, oh, it's not nothing to do with that crack in Doctor Who, is it? No, good. Luckily, <laughs> uh, so they they think this hole's been caused by possibly the the young stars that they were going to look at because as stars form, their the gas that they formed from gets blown away, and this is thought to be from jets of emission of gas coming out from uh, the poles of, of these stars. So this is sort of like like pulsars that we've talked about on the Jodcast before, where you have these jets of radio waves coming out. Yes. But in this case, these are jets of, of, of matter. matter. Right. Yeah, kind of like, uh, sort of, they're thought to start from winds, so they can be thought of kind of like that, uh, which would just, as you'd expect, blow a hole in a big cloud of dust. So it's a very very directional wind from a star that's blown a hole. Yep. But it could be more than one star, and they just happen to all be blowing in the right direction to create this hole. So it's basically, it's a hole from out on along the line of sight that we look through. So if yep. you were somewhere else in the galaxy, in the galaxy, you'd see you wouldn't necessarily you wouldn't see, see the hole. hole. No, you'd right. see the edge of the cloud from the other side. I guess. Oh. Well, that's good. Yep. It's if you go to ESA and try and look uh, look up NGC nineteen ninety nine, you'll probably find the image, and it's very pretty, as all of the Herschel images are. Well, we might put that as the show image. Oh, as a cover art on this yeah. show, that would be quite nice. Do they know if there are any other holes, or is this just a one-off that we happen to have I think seen this is a in the right direction? So far, I mean, yeah, as you say, if if you're not looking in the right direction, you're not going to see it, so... Right. We might find more, we might not. <laughs> now, talking of missing things, or empty places, we've recently had an interesting series of images from of Jupiter, taken by amateur astronomers around the world, um, showing the southern equatorial band, or rather not showing the southern equatorial band, because it's disappeared. There are images from last summer, 2009, that show the southern equatorial band, and this is basically a band of clouds that sit just um, on top of the Great Red Spot, 
or rather the great red spot sits at the bottom edge of the southern equatorial band, it's gradually faded away. And if you look at an image taken quite recently, there's nothing there. That also, I wasn't aware that apparently it does this on a on a fairly regular basis. Every three to 15 years or so, it just yeah. fades away and then, and then comes back. It's We're watching the weather changing on that's, Jupiter. That's quite impressive. I, I've, I've not heard of this cycle either. So Neither had I, actually, I'm... until I first read this on Emily Lakdawalla's blog on the Planetary Society website. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Emily has far more information if you want to find it. Now we get to that point in the Midman show where we put your questions to Dr. Tim O'Brien. The first message we've got this month is from Ron Davison, who first of all says thanks um, for always putting on a great podcast. So thanks for that, Ron. But secondly, he wanted to send us some information that might be useful to the gentleman who inquired about astronomy for the blind in, in, uh, in the last Ask an Astronomer I did. He says, if you listen to the March 6th podcast of 365 Days of Astronomy... Um, which is on 365daysofastronomy.org. The presenter discusses how to watch a solar eclipse if it's overcast, um, but in other words, cloudy, by using a chart recorder and a simple antenna and amplifier to monitor the radio emissions from the sun. And if then, if you were to use an audio amplifier in addition to that system, then a blind person would be able to uh, to actually experience the eclipse hourly by listening basically to the radio signal coming from the sun that passes through the clouds and he thinks that would be a unique way to to experience an eclipse so thanks for that ron that's certainly worth a try if you've got if you've got the equipment and perhaps we'll return to that in future since we've we've also done that ourselves actually at jodrell bank with uh certainly with a partial solar eclipse that happened in 2008 so we might put some information up about that and return to it in a future episode Second question we've had sent in from Mark Jones in San Antonio in Texas, and he says, when viewing an image of a galaxy as seen at an angle, such as the Andromeda galaxy, to what extent is the image distorted by the fact that the galaxy is rotating and the light from the far side of the galaxy has travelled many thousands of light years further than the light from the near side? In essence, we should be seeing a lag in the rotation of the far side of the galaxy as compared to the near side. Is this correct? Is this lag long enough to cause a significant distortion in the image? Okay, an interesting question. Of course, the the point here is that is that light travels at a finite speed, about three hundred thousand kilometers every second, which is pretty damn quick. But on the scale of a galaxy, it still takes that light. For example, in the Milky Way, it takes that light a hundred thousand years to cross the galaxy, and therefore it's true to say that when you look at one of these distant galaxies, let's say the Andromeda galaxy, which is the nearest large spiral galaxy to our own, then the light from the far side of the galaxy um, is taking several tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand years longer to reach us than the light from the near side. It depends on what angle the galaxy is tipped at relative to us. But it's certainly true that we're seeing the stars on the far side of a galaxy at uh, an earlier point in time, effectively, than the stars on the near side. Now, typically, 100,000 years for the light travel time across a galaxy sounds like a long time. But of course, in general, timescales, many timescales in astronomy are very much longer than that. So, for example, compare it to uh, the lifetime of a star. So the lifetime of the sun on the main sequence where it's turning hydrogen into helium is something like 10 billion years. 
so 10,000 million years. So if you compare 100,000 years to that, this light crossing time, that's only one one hundred thousandth of the lifetime of the star. So you wouldn't expect to see any appreciable difference in the properties of a star like the sun if you saw it, you know, if there was a star on the near side like the sun compared to a star on the far side of a galaxy like the sun, it would only be a very tiny fraction of its lifetime different. Um, even when you go to higher mass stars, let's say a, a 25 solar mass star, which, which burns its fuel faster and therefore has a shorter lifetime, its lifetime is still several million years. And even then you're only talking about, you know, maybe one or two percent of the, of the lifetime of the star. So it's getting a bit more significant, but still, still not huge. Now, returning to the particular point that Mark makes, which is, is is the image of the galaxy distorted in some way? Um, Because, of course, the galaxies galaxies rotate in a galaxy like Andromeda, for example, is all the stars are moving on circular orbits around its centre. And therefore, if you're seeing the stars on the far side at at a larger time into the past, looking farther back into the past than the stars on the near side, then maybe they're not actually in the same relative positions to each other. So there's some sort of shearing, some sort of twisting up of the galaxy as seen in the image that you see. The question is, how big an effect is that? Now, in fact, you know, my gut instinct was that it wasn't um, particularly a huge effect, just in the same way I've just discussed in terms of the fractional lifetime of the stars. Um, but I thought I'd better check. Uh, and so I worked through a few numbers um, and worked it out for Andromeda, imagining, let's say, a star like the Sun at, you know, the same sort of distance that the Sun is from the centre of our Milky Way, which is about uh, 8,000 parsecs, which is sort of 20, 26, 27,000 light years or so from the centre. Our sun moves around the the centre of our Milky Way at about 220 kilometres per second, some, something like that. So you can actually work out how far um, this star, the far side of the Andromeda galaxy, would have moved relative to, say, a star at the near side. And it turns out that at the distance of Andromeda, it would have it's actually offset by about six arc seconds. So an arc seconds one three thousand six hundredth of a degree. So it's a small angle on the sky, small different, uh, a very small change in the position of the star on the sky from where it would have been if they were all seen at the same time relative to the uh, the galaxy itself. But actually, interestingly enough, it's measurable because you know in in a in an image that we take of say the Andromeda galaxy, then we might expect say an, a, an optical image of the of the of the galaxy seen with visible light, you might expect to be able to measure the positions of these stars accurate to a fraction of an arc second. Certainly atmospheric seeing blurs the star positions to, to, uh, to maybe about an arc second across, um, but you can measure the, measure the positions rather more accurately than that. Um, so six arc seconds is measurable, rather surprisingly, I guess. But of course, on the scale of Andromeda, Andromeda is several degrees across. Uh, and one arc second is, as I say, one three thousand six hundredth of a degree. So it's a tiny distortion, although measurable. And of course, the real problem then is, how? What do you compare it to? How do you know what um, the galaxy uh, structure would have been to compare these, you know, slightly changed positions with? There's nothing to compare it to. It's not like, you know, the galaxy's got some very nice straight lines drawn on it running out from the middle to the outside edge and we can just see them start to start to curve a little bit as you see this distortion. So, um, so interestingly, uh, it's a, in a sense, it's a measurable effect for, uh, for galaxies as close as Andromeda, but, uh, we wouldn't really practically, it's hard to think of an example where it would, where it would matter, to be honest.
So, interesting question from Mark. Next comment is from uh, Miguel Werner, who uh, wrote, wrote in from South America. And he was actually referring to um, these sorts of weird uh, ideas that have been circulating about something strange going to happen in 2012. You know, is, is uh, of course, these sort of exaggerated conspiracy theories. Um, but in fact, what he was commenting about was, was one of our news it- articles, which we released recently. Um, which you might have seen on our website, which was about a mystery object in the Starburst Galaxy M82. And this was a story um, that a few of the astronomers here, Tom Muxlow in particular, uh, have been monitoring M82, which is a, uh, a, a galaxy with a lot of star formation going on in it. And therefore, because there's a lot of star formation, we call it a starburst, um, there's a lot of uh, star death, the, the massive stars explode in a supernova. And so they've been monitoring this galaxy for, for, for many years now, in particular looking at it with radio telescopes, which lets them see through the dust uh, in the interstellar medium right into the heart of this galaxy, where you can see where most of these supernovae have been taking place. And uh, back in uh, just, just over a year ago, back in April 2009, just the beginning of May 2009, a new bright point of radio emission appeared near the core of M82. So you, the suspicion, of course, was that it was a new supernova that had exploded and was producing radio waves. But the problem was that having monitored that, that, that object now, it doesn't really behave like any, um, any radio supernovae do that they've seen before. So it was very confusing as to what this was and it's still quite unclear. And one of the interesting features of this was that they, with Merlin, using the, the array of radio telescopes here in the UK that spread across about 200 kilometres, were able to measure, measure positions very extremely accurately. And we were able to measure the position of this object and it appeared that it was actually moving and moving sideways at a speed which, given the distance to M82, put the speed at about four times the speed of light. And this was mentioned in, in, in the press release that we did and, and, in fact, you know, discussed and explained. Now, what Miguel was pointing out was that actually there had been some bizarre suggestions in, in some of the people um, worrying about what might happen in 2012, that maybe this object that had been discovered in, in M82 was actually going to, going to crash into the Earth in, in 2012. Now, there's a few points about that, of course. Um, one is that, uh, that even if something were coming all the way towards us from M82, it's actually about uh, 13 million light years away. So we certainly wouldn't, even travelling at the speed of light, we certainly wouldn't have to worry about it arriving for some time yet. But also this sort of confusion, I guess, about um, things moving at an apparent speed faster than that of light. Because, of course, what we're not saying is that there's actually motion that's actually faster than the speed of light. It's just apparently faster than the speed of light. Um, this so-called superluminal motion. Um, and just, just to uh, clarify what that is, if you imagine an object, let's say in this case, it, it might be that this one theory for what this mystery object might be is that it could be something like a microquasar, which is a, uh, a stellar system with a black hole in it, companion star materials falling in towards the black hole and occasionally these systems uh, eject material. They have outbursts in which material is ejected at very high speeds not faster than the speed of light, but appreciable fractions of the speed of light, depending on the object, maybe 0.7, 0.8, 0.9, even, you know, very close to the speed of light. And now if you imagine one of the sort of blob of material being shot out from the region around near this black hole, uh, and if you imagine that blob sort of coming 
not quite directly towards us, but sort of at an angle to the to the to the line of sight um, towards us. And then we sort of take two pictures and we measure it as as we would as we did with, with this particular object. We take a picture on one day, take a picture a few days later or a few weeks later. So when we come to calculate the the apparent speed of this of this blob as it's moving, then what we're going to do is is div divide the sort of distance by time but during the time were between the two images it turns out the blobs actually got closer to us and so the time taken for the light to get to us from the second position is actually less um, because of the fact that the blob is closer to us and when you allow for that when you divide that distance by time because that time is shortened because the blobs actually got closer to you the speed that you get is artificially um, boosted because you're dividing distance by time, you're dividing by a shorter time so you get a larger speed. And you can actually just work that out and work out by what factor um, the apparent speed uh, compares to the speed of light. And it turns out for you know plausible values of the of, of the actual speed of the blob as some sort of fraction like 0.8, 80% of the speed of light or something, you can actually get particular ranges of angles at which it's coming towards you for which the speed you would apparently measure from the two images is some factor greater than the speed of light. So anyway, just to <laughs> just to clarify, um, we haven't detected anything that's actually moving faster than the speed of light um, intrinsically. It just appears to be. Um, and also there's certainly no way in which that thing is going coming towards us that it's going to actually crash into us and cause some hideous problem in 2012. Okay, the next question we've got is from Martin, uh, who hails from Dublin in Ireland, and he says, uh, do you think my newborn child will see an unmanned interstellar probe being launched during his lifetime? How far away are we from launching such a mission? What are the main hurdles? I guess the propulsion is important, but what are any other hurdles? And when do you guesstimate an interstellar mission will be launched, if at all? Okay, I, I guess the first thing to uh, point out about interstellar probes is that in a sense we've launched one because because of course uh several in fact the voyager spacecraft are um are heading out of the sort left the solar system now heading out into interstellar space um not actually of course designed to be interstellar probes but certainly going that way now and if we'd sent something like voyager to towards the nearest star at something like moving at about 20 kilometers a second um it would still take voyager to travel to about 80,000 years to get to the nearest star so i guess that's the first uh, major problem with thinking about interstellar missions is that uh, at the sorts of speeds we've built spacecraft to travel at so far it's you know ridiculously long amounts of time now it doesn't mean to say you can't send them out there and indeed they are going out there now um, but i suppose the big question would be why you know what would be your motivation for doing this um, normally i guess most of us are motivated by things that occur on our human timescales in other words within our lifetime so we'd like to we certainly don't often get phd students who want to start doing phd projects from which they won't see the result for eighty thousand years so you know i think that would be one big motivator what why would we bother to send out an unmanned interstellar probe for for which the results would not uh, be returned for for many many thousands of years now, one issue that's uh, obviously often discussed is that um, if one tries to do things faster, travel faster, so travel at speeds approaching that of light, then we get this effect called time dilation, which is a, 
a consequence of Einstein's special theory of relativity, which means it's commonly known as moving clocks run slow. So from the point of view of a, an occupant of a spacecraft which travels at a very high fraction of the speed of light, it actually, for them, it takes less time for them to uh, to travel these distances. So, for example, if you were to imagine a spacecraft travelling at 0.995 the speed of light, um, and they were travelling, say, 10 light years, from a point of view of someone on the Earth, that would take them about 10.05 years, so just over 10 years because they're travelling uh, a little less than the speed of light. Um, but from the point of view of any occupant of the spacecraft, they'd actually only age just over a year, 1.004 years during during the trip. Now, obviously, that helps if you've got a, a, a spacecraft with with humans on board um, because the travel time is much reduced for them. Um, but it doesn't really help from the point of an Earthbound observer. Uh, still takes the same amount of time. And indeed, you know, if you had an unmanned spacecraft, as we're referring to here, it doesn't really make any any odds. But one thing it does mean is that if we were, as a practical effect for an unmanned probe, is that when we accelerate this spacecraft that, you know, normal speeds would take many thousands of years to reach, a, say, even the nearest star, if we try accelerating that to close to the speed of light, the trouble is the amount of energy required, what special relativity tells us is the amount of energy required is huge. So, um, so I think the problem with fast interstellar travel is the energy requirements, really. Um, are pretty unreasonable. So you've got to rely on slow interstellar travel. If you're talking about unmanned probes, you've got to ask, why would you bother? What would be the purpose, given it's so slow, you don't get any results back from that survey for, for many, many years? I guess if you think about colonisation, one interesting thing is that even travelling at rather low speeds, you know, maybe 1% the speed of light or something, where you might plausibly be able to work out an energy budget that would be affordable, it turns out that, you know, you could perhaps travel to the nearby stars in a thousand years or so, and maybe you'd be prepared to have generations of colonists on board the spacecraft live and die. If those colonists sort of got to the nearest star in, in a thousand years, I guess, and then and then perhaps moved on, they know how to build these spacecraft, so they think, okay, well, we'll we've had, we're a bit bored with this new planet, we'll move on to another one, um, hang around, so they hang around for a few hundred years and then move on. You can work out how long it would take a sort of wave of colonisation to, to spread across the galaxy, and, and estimates would, you know, you could put that at maybe only a few tens of millions of years. Sounds like a long time to cross the whole galaxy, a few tens of millions of years, but of course, you know, on the lifetime of the galaxy, our sun's been around for 5 billion years, 5,000 million years. So a few tens of millions of years is only a small fraction. So it seems that, you know, if anybody, any civilization ever got to that point where they decided that colonization was a, uh, interstellar colonization was an interesting thing to do, it seems like they might actually be able to do it relatively quickly. And therefore, you know, that leads to this famous paradox known as the Fermi or Hart paradox. Um, is if, if aliens exist, extraterrestrials exist, why aren't they here already? Because, you know, if they thought of colonising space, they would have colonised space, they would have been able to spread across the galaxy. So, of course, there are a number of um, answers to that uh, question, and it's not really uh, the place here to discuss those, perhaps, perhaps another time. Now, the final question for this month is also from Martin. He sneaked in a couple of questions. Uh, he says... Do we know more about our closest stars than those further away? Does it matter if a star is four light years away or 1,000 light years away when it comes to the information we get when we point a telescope at it? 
Obviously, you'd imagine that if something was closer to you, you'd be able to find out more about it. Now, that's true for stars in certain circumstances. There's certain properties that we're able to measure more easily. Um, one example is sort of measuring the position of a star and indeed its distance. So you may have heard of, uh, of parallax, which is in effect, you know, you stretch out your arm, raise one finger, close one eye and look at the position of your finger relative to a, the background and then change eyes. Um, you'll see your finger moves against the, against the background. That same effect you get when you take pictures of nearby stars. Um, with the Earth at one position in its orbit, say, and with it on the other extreme of its orbit six months later. Uh, and that parallax gives us probably, you know, the most accurate distances to stars. Now, that's easier to do the closer a star is to us. Um, you might be able to measure the movement of a star uh, in a binary system just by measuring its position, for example, if it's close enough to us to, to, to resolve, to, to see that, to see that movement. Uh, similarly, the, the, you know, the closer stars, closer and larger stars, you might actually be able to use high-resolution imaging to resolve the disk of the star. But actually, in general, what matters most about the information we can find out about uh, stars is their brightness. And it's true to say that if if I take a particular star, bring it closer to us, it will, of course, appear brighter, um, and that will be helpful to us. But often stars spread across a, a very large range of brightness. Typically, um, stars are rather fainter than the sun. The star is actually uh, not that average. Uh, it's actually brighter than the average. And in the region of the solar neighborhood, in the region of space around the sun, most stars are actually much less massive than the sun. They're so-called M-type dwarfs. They're sort of cool red dwarfs, less massive than the sun, and therefore uh, rather fainter than the sun. So... Um, so you imagine looking around in space, you might think, oh, well, we know about all the stars that are close to us and we know a huge amount of information about them. Well, that's not actually true. Because these stars are, are relatively faint, um, they're not that obvious. Uh, and then we have to, to determine that they're close to us. We need to somehow be able to work out their distance. And that's not um, too easy a thing to do. So just for example, there's a project, a collaboration called RECONS, which stands for Research Consortium on Nearby Stars, and they've been um, trying to tie down really what the properties of the uh, of the stellar populations are within, um, you know, the closest the closest stars to the sun within 10 parsecs or within 25 parsecs or so of the sun. So that's sort of 30 light years or so away. Now, interestingly, the, they report that in 2000, in the year 2000, there were 215 stellar systems known within 10 parsecs of the sun, within about 30 light years of the sun. Whereas in 2009, there were 249. So it had gone up from 215 to 249, an extra 34 stellar systems just in the last decade discovered very close to the sun. Now, in fact, the majority of these stars are these M-type dwarfs, 72% of them. So, in fact, the numbers of M-dwarfs have gone up from 199 to 239, whereas other types of star, like G-type stars, like the Sun, um, there's 21 of those within 10 parsecs of the Sun, and that was the case in the year 2000. It's still the case in, in 2009. Uh, similarly, white dwarf stars, the remnants of of, of uh, stars like the sun when they've when they've evolved through the red giant phase those white dwarfs there's about 18 known in 2000 and similarly 18 known in 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 2009 so i would say that 
whether the distance to a star matters about what you can find out about it. Well, it does for certain specific things, but in general, the, the most important thing is the brightness. And that will be the apparent brightness of the star will depend on both its distance and its intrinsic brightness. And when you've got a bright star, you can, for example, split that light into a spectrum. You've got a large number of photons, let's say, and that gives you very high signal-to-noise measurements, which lets you determine very particular properties of that star, like its composition and its uh, its size, effective gravity, and so on and so forth. So brightness is what matters mostly. That's it for this month's Ask an Astronomer. If you've got any questions you'd like answered, then send them in by the usual routes. And I'll speak to you again next month. Thanks for that, Tim. So we've reached the part of the show where we usually discuss the feedback from Facebook or Twitter. But as we mentioned at the top of the show, we've been conducting the survey. So Stuart, you wanted to talk about some of the uh, initial results from the survey. Yeah, I mean, we've we had quite a lot of responses. We had more than we had um, in 2007, which is really good, and thank you. You can still can fill in the survey, but you have no chance to win a book now, as we've already picked a winner. However, there were a few comments in the survey that I wanted to pick up on. People suggested ways that the Jodcast could be improved. Um, thank you very much to all the people who've given us constructive suggestions there. There were a few things that people mentioned which actually we sort of already do, and so I just wanted to remind people about a few things. So one of the the comments was that they would like us to have no gaps or ads. Now, actually, the M- the podcast version of the Jodcast doesn't have any gaps or ads in the show, and I think, Adam, you thought it might be someone's listening on Astronomy FM. That was the only reason I could think of. <laughs> right, so if you're the person who complained about the gaps and ads and you're listening on Astronomy FM, then that's Astronomy <laughs> FM and not us. Yep. Um, so if you would prefer no gaps or ads, you can go to jodcast.net and subscribe to the podcast there. We had a few comments from people about the southern sky or lack of southern sky in the Jodcast for the night sky segment. Now, in recent months, we have been including a part about the night sky. We didn't have one in April because it was the April Fool edition, but we have been trying to include the Southern Sky, and we're actually um, talking with some people in New Zealand about having a very specific Southern Night Sky segment for the Jodcast as well. So we're aiming to deal with that issue, which we know is a problem, because there is a huge Northern Hemisphere bias. Yeah, it certainly is. (laughs) There were some other comments. One was about uh, having a contents page at the beginning of the Jodcast, which would we would audibly, I presume, say when things were going to happen so that people could skip ahead. Now, unfortunately, as we record this, if you saw us recording in our (laughs) small cupboard at the back of the lecture theatre, you would realise that we aren't organised to know exactly when anything will be in the Jodcast when we record the show. That gets decided afterwards by whoever's editing. Yep. So... Having edited together, uh, it's a bit all over the shop until you've finally got the final cut. It is. It definitely is. (laughs) We can't do that, but what we do to try and get around that is that we provide the separate segments of the show as individual downloads so that you can skip the chatter and us talking about things if you want to. And that was another of the comments in the how it could be improved, getting rid of some of the chatter. So you can actually get rid of all the chatter if you so wish. But also we put in the description in the RSS feed, so in iTunes or your MP3 player, the description for each episode does contain the times when the various segments start. Now talking about the us talking about feedback... In fact, there were a few people who suggested they didn't like listening to the feedback. And we had that comment, I think, back in the 2007 survey, which is why we moved the feedback part of the show to the end of the show. So if you don't aren't bothered about hearing what other Jodcast listeners have written in to say, you can actually turn off. 
Yep. So no more science beyond the feedback point. <laughs> exactly. So if you don't like the feedback, then just turn off once you get to us talking about feedback. And we won't be offended. <laughs> right, so that's it, really. Um, there are plenty of other things from the survey, but it will take a bit of time to have a look and analyse those data. And that's the end of the feedback. And so that brings us to the end of the show as well. Remember, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. Our videos are at youtube.com slash jodcast. We have a Facebook account at jodcast.net forward slash Facebook. And we're on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. So that just leaves us to say thank you to Max Alexander and to Matt Griffin for all being interviewed. And the interviews were edited by Adam Averson and Stuart Lowe, and the show editor was Chris Tibbs. So until next time, jod on! Bye! Bye.